0: All right, well, as the ushers finish up uh, collecting this morning's offering, uh, we're just going to go ahead and we're going we're to jump right in. Uh, I guess first I want to say, uh, you know, we talked, we acknowledged our, our children's and youth programming as we did uh, the baptism uh, for Bree. Uh, I know that Vince likes to be able to get upstairs, if possible, to, to participate in those and be here for those. And uh, but he also leads our, our large group children's programming downstairs on Sunday mornings. And so uh, sometimes that doesn't work. But uh, uh, I just want to thank you. I take, take a second and, and thank you for being a church that has decided to prioritize that area of ministry. Um, not every church would, would make the decision to do that. Uh, but, but making the decision to prioritize children, family, youth ministry. And I think what we've seen over the course of even just this year, and I know it goes past that, but, but even just this year or back to last summer in the last 12 months, you know, after camp, we've, we've been able to see countless, actually that's not true, I could count them, um, but we've been able to see multiple junior high students baptized and uh, some high schoolers baptized and uh, even an elementary student or two participate in baptism. And those are people that have decided, you know what, I'm all in on following Jesus. And that is in large part due to the children's and youth and family ministry that we have going on here. And so as a church, I want to thank you uh, for your support of that. And as we continue to minister in that way, I just want to encourage you to be involved and and be plugged in and, and be a part of that. Okay. So today we jump in to our new, it's a short series, two week series to our new series, Battle of the Sexes. And I appreciate the name, as we're going to talk today about biblical masculinity, and next week we'll talk about um, biblical uh, womanhood. Uh, we're going we're to gonna kind of dive into those things. But I appreciate the name and, and the graphic that, that was, was designed for this series. And the reason for that is because this is the way that culture looks at it. When we talk about biblical manhood and we talk about biblical womanhood, this idea of masculinity uh, and the idea of femininity, in the world that we live in, we kind of get the picture that those two things are in a fight with each other. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about here in the church. I'm just talking in general, in the world we live in, it seems like for men to win, at least the picture is, the picture that's painted is that women have to lose. And for women to win that men have to lose. And so it feels like when we talk about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood that that we have this battle that happens between the sexes. The reality is, though, that God didn't design it that way. What God designed intentionally, purposely, was so that when we embrace biblical manhood and we embrace biblical womanhood and we understand what God has called us to be as men and women, okay, that it's good for everyone, that everyone thrives in the way we were created. But here's the thing. There's tension in the room because we're going to talk about masculinity, and we're going to talk about femininity, and we're going to talk about how there is, are you ready for this? I'm going to say it, and it's, it, it's going to really ruffle some feathers. Some of you, it's going to rub the wrong way. We're going to talk about distinction in those roles, and I get it. I get that it, that it ruffles feathers, and I understand that it does that partly because of the world that we live in, Okay, but I'm going to ask you to trust me and walk through some scripture with me as we see that God has done this by design, on purpose, for the flourishing of humankind. Okay, and so I think we're going to see that. I don't think you'll struggle to see that as we, as we walk through this. Uh, and we're going to talk about men specifically first, and I know it's supposed to be ladies first, but then we'd have been talking about biblical manhood on Mother's Day, and that felt weird to me. So, so, we're going to do men first, and we'll talk about biblical womanhood next week on Mother's Day, and I'm sure Dave mentioned that, but uh, everybody show up for breakfast, bring the women in your life, uh, whether they're moms or not, to bring them for breakfast at 8.30, get a picture taken, uh, we'll have our photo booth set up, and uh, uh, it, should be, it should be a lot of fun that way. And men, um, you know, the elders and some other folks have agreed to, to come help prepare and, and uh, And clean up and serve uh, the ladies in our life. And if you're available to show up a little early and help with that, then just please do so. You don't need to sign up for it. Just show up and um, never turn away um, an opportunity to serve. So uh, that should be good. Okay. All right. But we jump in with biblical manhood today. Okay. And so here's what you need to know. We're going to start with the text. Uh, We're going to look at a couple of significant questions. The first question is, is there more to being an authentic biblical man than being male? You'll excuse my bluntness. Does it take more than a penis to make you a man? Because really, that's what we've done in our world today is, is we've kind of crossed those things. We've said that all it takes is the right plumbing, and then, and then you've become an authentic man. That's the way it works. But, the reality is, according to scripture, there is something totally different wrapped up in this idea of what it means to be a biblical man. So the question is, is what does it take to be a biblical man and, 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 and what does it look like and what are we called to and then practically, how do we live that out? And so I'm going to say this um, and, and I'm, I'm going to acknowledge it up front that the standard is high and that if you are like me, you have blown it. Because when we look at scripture, the most authentic man ever to walk the face of the earth was Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is the standard men that we are supposed to live to, then we've all blown it. And ladies, if you're you're here today and you're thinking, okay, so what does this have for me? There's a couple of things I need you to know. Um, As we talk about this one is if you're not married and you plan to be married or if you happen to be my daughter who's in middle school Or my daughter's friends who are in middle school, whatever listen carefully because You don't want to make this mistake You don't want to marry a boy When God has called you to marry a man and there are a lot of boys who shave. There are a lot of little ones out there in grown-up bodies that don't understand what they're called to be. Listen carefully. And if you're here and you're dating or you're in a relationship, listen, this is not a mistake you want to make. Okay? And if you've got daughters that need encouragement or you've got grandchildren that need encouragement, listen carefully. This is, these are things we have to get right. The stakes are high. Okay? But... We start here, Paul says, uh, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And so Paul starts this text with um, a very clear understanding that men are to be distinct, okay, Um, and, and that men are to stand firm, and they're to be strong and courageous, that verb, androsima. Uh, For act like men, Uh, in some scriptures will translate, have courage, be courageous. Okay, That's not saying that women are not called to stand firm. It's not saying that women are not called to be courageous or be strong or to let everything they do be done in love. Of course, women are called to that. But what Paul is saying here through the power of the Holy Spirit is there is something altogether different about this idea of manhood. That if you are going to be a biblically authentic man, this is you. You have to act like a man. That means that Paul is driving a wedge, okay? Uh, Maybe wedge is the wrong word, but he's drawing a line, and he's saying, hey, there is a distinction that exists between man and woman. And in our world, we've got a couple of false narratives about that. We don't need to dwell here too long, but we need to acknowledge there's a couple of things that, that have been taught, and they are, typically, there's a line based on what age you are, as to which one of these that you've been discipled in. Because, men, we get discipled. The culture disciples us. Uh, It's one of the mistakes we make as parents sometimes, is assuming that the culture will take care of our kids, because we bring them to church, because they go to Sunday school, because they have lessons, uh, and they grow in faith, and all of these things, that they will just naturally get it right. But what we have to understand is that the culture disciples We've talked about it before. If you think about being in a canoe, okay, you might say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to paddle too hard. I'm going to let my kids get to a certain age, and then I'm going to let them decide what they believe for themselves. I hear that all the time. I don't want to shove anything down their throats. I want to let them get to a certain age, and then I want to let them decide. And so, instead of, think about it in the canoe, you're, you're sitting in the river, instead of paddling the direction that you want to go, you, you put, the, you put the, the paddle on top of the canoe and you just say, we're going to wait. We're going to wait until they're old enough to decide for themselves. The problem with that, though, is they don't stay there. See, because the world we live in, the culture that we live in, has a current that moves, And if I say, well, I'm just going to put the paddle up and I'm going to wait till they get a certain age and then I'm going to let them decide for themselves what they want to believe or how they're going to think. The problem is, by the time I decide to get involved, they're already miles down the stream because the current has carried them. So, whether you want to believe it or not, you've been discipled in one of these two things. I'm not saying you necessarily believe it, but you've been discipled in one of these two things. If you're my age, and older, and I'm, I'm kind of always about 40 to 45 is the dividing line here. Okay. Um, for right now, I guess the dividing line will change. Um, happens. But for right now, if you're my age or older, you've been discipled in this whole machismo narrative. Matt Chandler breaks this out for us in, 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 in these two ways. And, and it's the idea that in this narrative, um, it's, it's the, you got to be tough boys don't cry. Lock those feelings up. Push them down. We judge manhood by conquest, athletic prowess, physical ability, And so if you're my age or older, you've been discipled in this idea that men are physically imposing, that men um, don't navigate in the realm of feelings at all, that men um, are manly when they are um, victorious and when they have position and when they achieve and and when they, they conquer the problem is when that's left unchecked, you know what we end up with? We end up with Me Too movements. We end up with Harvey Weinstein. We end up with, with a lot of goofiness because this breed of, of man, this, this macho, this machismo, this, this guy who, who is discipled that this is what men are and this is how men are, they don't take no for an answer. They don't listen well. They're not sensitive at all. The problem with that narrative Is that if I read through scripture and all of history and I choose the two manliest men that I can think of, it'll automatically disqualify them from being authentic men. And that would be Jesus, and then I think about King David. You know, read through King, man, read read through the, the Old Testament and the history and read about King David. I mean, that dude killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands to protect his sheep. I mean, listen, I know you go to kettlebells right? I know you work out. I'm taking, I'm, I'm putting my money on David, okay? Strong and courageous, but you know what that guy did? That guy wrote poetry. That guy danced for joy in the presence of the Lord. That guy wept openly when his family and his nation and his God were offended. So the machismo narrative, it doesn't work for us, and it it leads us in a wrong place. And then if you're younger than me, and this is really the millennial narrative, if you're younger than me, or if you're still a kid right now, this is what you are actively being discipled in. Through media, through school, through, through you name it, you're actively being discipled to believe that gender is flat. That other than physical differences... Other than the physical differences between man and woman, there really is no distinction in gender. In fact, um, this millennial gender is flat narrative is framed for you in such a way that it is almost that it's old-fashioned and misogynistic for you to think differently, which is problematic because I can think differently without being old-fashioned and misogynistic, but, but the narrative is painted that if you disagree that there should be any distinction between men and women, that somehow you are wrong, outdated, and problematic. You're what's wrong. You're holding women down, or, or, or you're, you're doing something that you shouldn't do. And the, and the problem is that's just not accurate, because when we get into Scripture, we're going to see that God has created distinction. We're going to hear about that for men this week, but you'll hear about it for women next week. God has created clear distinction. Okay, so we are called to act like men. Not boys, not women, not animals. We are called to act like men. And then God, because He's gracious, tells us what that is be watchful. When we act like men, we are called to be watchful. You know what it means to be watchful? To be watchful means that you are um, on guard. To be watchful means that you understand that the days are not awesome, that the world is not right. As a biblical man, when you are watchful, it means that you understand that not everybody has your wives or your kids or the people that you care about. Not everybody has their best interest at heart. It doesn't mean that you're cynical, but it means you're watchful. It means that you understand. It means that you protect. It means that you guard. When you're watchful, you don't allow for stupid. We live in a world where stupid happens a lot. I mean, let's be just honest. Stupid happens. um, You know, our kids do stupid. Their friends do stupid. We do stupid. You turn on the TV, all you see is stupid. Stupid is everywhere. But as watchful men, as godly men, as biblically authentic men, we stand firm. We're watchful. We we are careful. This means that we we be serious and not silly. Now listen, I, I like silliness. There is a time and a place for silliness. But when I say be serious instead of silly, think about this. Little boys are silly. And when little boys are silly we love it. We love it when little boys are silly because they're supposed to be silly. Little boys run around. They pretend to be dinosaurs, right? They shoot each other with dark guns. They play whatever. They, little boys are silly. But what, what happens is when we're supposed to be men, okay, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying here, you know, stop that. Put little boy silliness aside. And there's a time for play, and there's a time for that in your homes, and that's great. But put silliness aside. It's time to be serious. It's time to take your responsibilities seriously. And then he tells us to stand firm. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. This is something that's active. Too many of us men are passive. You cannot be a biblical man. You cannot be an authentic man. You cannot embrace the masculinity that God has put in your heart and the call if you are going to be passive. When you're passive, you just sit back and you let things happen. But Paul says, no, 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 stand firm in the faith. Be actively involved, standing firm. You know how you stand firm in the faith? You practice the faith. Men, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Because, well, that would probably be embarrassing. But I want you to think about it in your head. Let's act as if I asked you to raise your hand. How many of you read the Bible last week? Let me think about that. How many of you actively engaged in Scripture last week? How many of you... who? By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then I'm going to let you off the hook of this one because you never claimed to believe that this was the um, inerrant word of God. But if you're here today and you say, I'm following Jesus, I am all in on Jesus, the God of the universe is real, heaven and hell are real, Jesus died for my sins, the word of God is real, that's your, your faith, that's your belief. If that's you, men, how many of you opened this up last week? How many of you read it? How many of you spent time seeing what it even says? I, I could add to that. How many of you prayed? I mean, like, earnest, tear-filled prayer. See, some of you are like, oh, whoa, whoa time out. Tear-filled prayers. That's not very manly. Come on. So one of the, the great lies of the, the enemy, uh, I think, is that angst-filled prayer is woman's work. But men, you're called to lead in this way. I mean, standing firm in the faith means that you are in the faith. You can't stand firm in the faith if you are not immersed in the faith. And too many of us, we have faith. We put the plaques on our walls, and it's great, right? I remember growing up, there was a plaque on my wall. Bless my parents for trying hard. There was a plaque on the wall that said, prayer changes things. The only prayer ever uttered in my home that I'm aware of was God is good, God is great, let us thank him for this food, amen. On occasion, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, Yea, God. Every once in a while, on special occasions, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, who eats the fastest, gets the most, Yea, God. That was it, that was the only time we prayed, was when we sat down for grace, and then we made jokes of it, okay? But we had a plaque on the wall that says, man, because we are firm in the faith, prayer changes things. It's not authentic manhood to lead your family in pithy sayings when you're not willing to roll your sleeves up and dig in. But Paul says, acting like an authentic biblical man means you dig in and you stand firm in the faith. And you can't stand firm in the faith if you don't know faith. If faith isn't a regular part of the way you live, you can't stand firm in it. The other thing about this too is, man, you got to guard your heart. I mean, you've got to guard your heart if you're going to stand firm in faith. Look, I don't want to exaggerate, so I can't say it's countless men, but I've been a pastor for four years, and I was an elder for about eight before that. So in, in about 12 years, in about 12 years of intense church service, and I did some counseling in there and some other things, in about 12 years of serious church service, I'm talking about in the 20s. Men who came to me broken because they slept with someone that wasn't their wife. And they couldn't figure out how it happened. I mean, they knew how it happened. And they weren't confused about the act. What they couldn't figure out is how they got there because they never wanted to. They never intended to have an affair. They never intended to cheat on their spouse. They never intended to step out. They never wanted any of that to be the way that it was. But here's the problem. None of them were good at guarding their heart. And if you're going to stand firm in the faith, you have to guard your heart. Be careful what you put in front of your face. Be careful about the situations that you allow yourself to be in. Be careful about the things that you entertain. Because nobody wakes up in the morning. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, Today I'm going to commit a grievous error. But yet, all the time, people commit these grievous errors because they aren't standing firm in faith, they're not guarding their heart. It doesn't work. Men, you have to draw lines. You have to draw lines. And then you have to not cross lines. You have to have a plan. You have to be firm. Here's the other thing you need uh, in this instance, and this will come up again here in a little bit. You need accountability. Men, you need somebody in your life that is not your wife. If you're not married, then that is obvious to you. But even if you're married, you need somebody in your life that is not your wife that you will tell the truth to. That you will tell the truth to that will know exactly where you are, that will know exactly what you struggle with, that will know exactly what's going on in your heart. Somebody that does not mind hurting your feelings when they have to. Somebody that loves you enough that they will hurt you if they have to. Michael Isley, uh, former uh, president of Moody Bible Institute, used to say it this way, and it just, it makes so much sense to me when we think about it that way, used to say that you need two to three men in your life that you will trust with your wallet and your wife. And if you have men that you will trust with your wallet and your wife, that you have men that will help you stand firm in the faith. And the reason this is so critical for godly men is because it is not about you. Men, when you stumble and fall, if you, when you stumble and fall, it affects everybody around you. If you're married, it affects your wife, it affects your children, your work, your witness. When you stumble and fall, there is this domino effect where it just impacts everybody. So you're called to stand firm in the faith. You need people around you to help you do that. And the other thing about standing firm is that you will screw it up. And when you screw it up, you need to fall on the cross. Because we're not perfect, because we make mistakes, uh, and because Satan is good at what he does, and because the world is pushing us in this direction, there are going to be times that we fall. We're trying to stand firm in the faith, and we fall. Now, first of all, hopefully you've drawn your lines well enough that when you stumble and fall, you are stumbling and falling way back here. You're not stumbling and falling way up here where it's this grievous error. Okay, that's where your good accountability comes in. But when you stumble and fall, man, don't hide from it. Let me ask you this, man. Do the people in your life, the people that you um, would consider yours to care for, to lead, to pour into, do the people in your life know what godly sorrow looks like? Do they know what it means for godly repentance? Do the people in your life know what confession and falling on the grace of God is? That's part of how you stand firm in the faith. Paul keeps going here. He says you're to be strong, okay? Uh, and, and this is where I want to be careful here because this strong is not about physical strength. This strong is not about how muscular you are. This strong is not about how much you can lift. This strong is about none of those things. This strong, when Paul says be strong, right? You be watchful, you stand firm, you be strong. This is about your desire to nurture and protect those that God has given you. Part of the distinction, men, is that it is your job to nurture and protect. Anybody that's under your care. When you get married, okay, whether culture likes it or not, biblically speaking, you are called to nurture and care for your wife. When you have children, when you adopt children, when you have stepchildren, When you have friends, children come to your house, you are called to nurture and care for, to protect, to be strong. This isn't false machismo strength. This is strength that is rooted in, there are two things here. Understand this, toughness and tenderness. Jesus is our perfect model for that. Jesus was tough, and at the same time, Jesus was tender. If you wanted to hurt someone that had been marginalized by society, if you wanted to oppress, if you wanted to keep people down, if you wanted to be problematic for the least of these, if you were trying to keep people down, if you were trying to harm or abuse, then Jesus was tough. He called you out, He publicly put you in your place. He turned over tables in the temple. He he made a whip of cords and he drove out people that were oppressing uh, the foreigners in the temple. Jesus was tough when he needed to be. But if you were contrite and you were brokenhearted, if you needed care and encouragement and love, then Jesus was tender. He forgave sinners. He washed feet. He dried tears. He ate with sinners. Jesus was tender. Listen, this strong that we're talking about here, this be strong, is not necessarily a call for you to just be physically imposing. See, too many men, especially if they're myself or older, they've fallen into that mode of strength is physical imposing. We can impose our will on people because we are bigger and we are stronger in some cases, and and we can just kind of impose our will in that strength. That's not strength. That's not the strength that Jesus had. Tough and tender, and then finally here in this text, we see this, let all that you do be done in love. So biblical men are watchful. They stand firm in the faith. They act like men. They're strong. And then this last thing that should feel culturally speaking, a little counterintuitive, let everything you do be done in love. Here's what I want you to understand. The mark of biblical manhood is the ability of a man to love. Men, if you are here and you want to be a biblically authentic man, then listen to me. You can have a big burly beard. That's awesome. Okay, where's Vince? If Vince were here, we could point to his beard. I always have beard envy of Vince. Do you know that when I first met Vince, I mean, that thing was like down to here. Once, because, well, I guess that's what 25-year-olds do. Uh, we were sitting in the office, and he just started putting toothpicks in his beard. How many? Like 256. But who's counting, right? 256. Vince's beard was so big and long and bushy that he had stuck 256 toothpicks, and you couldn't see them. They were just in there. Don't worry, we threw them away. I've always had a little beard envy of Vince, uh, and, and there are some of you who, who are, are pretty physically um, in shape, not so much, right? There are a lot of things, right? But when we look at manhood, when we look at authentic manhood, we look at the markers of that as, well, you, you've got a big bushy beard, you've got big burly muscles, uh, you shoot things, you hunt things, you fix cars, you fell trees, um, you know, you, you do all of these manly things, and that that's the idea of authentic manhood. And, and what Paul says is, you know, that's all fine and good, but that's not what makes you a man. What makes you a man is your ability to love well. <sighs> Remember an awkward conversation I had with my grandpa Buchanan before he died. He was always a guy that was physically active. He had a, he had a shop, and, and he was always making things, and he was always doing things, and, and he was just very um, handy and, and always, always building something, always doing things. And, and there was a time when, when we were moving, and he came, but he couldn't help move. He had rheumatoid arthritis. It was bad. It hurt him to move. And so we're all picking up furniture and moving things. And, and, and he says to me, and with, with genuine sorrow in his voice, Sorry, Matt, I, I, I'm just not much of a man anymore. That's the only time I ever had the guts to correct my grandpa. It's like, like you know, I'm not sure exactly what makes somebody a man, but, but it's not being able to carry the other end of the mattress. That's not what does it. And we had that exchange, and and it was meaningful for me. And and I think the reality is there's something for us to understand there, is that all of that is good. None of that is wrong. And, men, that's all something that we should do and celebrate, and when we can and we love it, and that's great. But but the authentic, what Paul tells us here, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what makes you a man is your ability to love well, to let everything you do be done in love. And so I'm just going to ask you this. Do the people in your life, the people that you lead well, the people that God has put in your life, do they know that everything you do is done because you love? Or would they have to guess? And there are a lot of ways to express love. I mean, for some of us, it's just the words, I love you. Some of us, it's still hugs and kisses. There's nothing wrong with that. For some of us, it's, the fact that I will pour myself out and I will sacrifice things for myself so that I can do for you. I'm not sure what it is, but, but do the people that are in, and I'm, yes, your wife, yes, your kids, but whoever it is that you are supposed to be leading well, whoever it is that God has put in your life that you can lead, this is, this is why being an elder is tough business. Because as an elder, when you, when you say, I'm going to be an elder of the church, that that's what God has called me to do, that God has called you to lead the church. That's a lot of people that you are supposed to lead with love. That's why when when we ask you to affirm elders, we're not asking you to do something perfunctory. We're not asking you just to say, oh yeah, sure. You know, that's great good for them. No, we're asking you to prayerfully consider the men that we put in front of you to serve as elders because we know this is a tall order. Let everything that you do be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let everything you do be done in love for the people that you are over and that you are leading. And when you're an elder, you lead the church. That is no small task. This is a big deal when we let everything we do be done in love. And I'm not talking about ooey-gooey romantic love, although that's great. I love ooey-gooey romantic love with my wife. But this is talking about the hard, committed, sacrificial, I put you ahead of me love. This is the, if I had to today, I would die for you love. This is a big deal. We keep going here and I just want to cover a few practical things with you. So what does this look like? We're called to be men. What does it look like? Uh, and, and the first thing is that, that men control their emotions and passions. God says this to, uh, to um, Cain, Genesis 4, um, when he's upset about his offering not being accepted. God says, hey, listen, if you do right, Then it's gonna go well for you. But if you refuse to do white then, then right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Men. You cannot be a godly man. You cannot have authentic biblical manhood and be at the will of passions and emotions and desires in your life. You must subdue them and you must make them submit. It's that simple. You cannot be an authentic man and be addicted to something. Alcohol, pornography, sex, power, money, I don't care what it is. You cannot be a biblically authentic man and be addicted to something. Because sin is at your door and it wants to own you. It wants to have you. And God says you must master it and subdue it. You cannot be a godly man and be at the whim of your passions. A man provides for his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Now, look, we live in a day and age where, and the way it's always been at my house, um, except for a very brief time when I had two kids at home, is Carrie and I have always both worked outside the house. We just always have. It's, it's been necessary for us. Um, and I use the word necessary uh, kind of loosely, it's made our lives a whole lot simpler. We could manage if one of us stayed home and one of us worked, but it would be rough. We've always, we've always done that. So there's nothing wrong with, with having a family where everybody works. That's, I, I got no issues with that. I'm not going to complain about that. But what I will say is this, men, this is your call. If, if, if your family needs Um, somebody else to work. Great. Okay. Whatever you have to do. But, but if, if somebody in your family is called to work, that's you work, provide for your family. That is something that God has put on you as the leader of your family to work for your family, to provide for your family. And that doesn't mean that there won't be seasons that are light, and it doesn't mean there won't be times that are hard, and it doesn't mean that there won't be times where we struggle to find work. I get that. I'm not suggesting that that's sinful. What I'm saying is, as much as it depends on you, work and provide for the people that God has put in your care. Men do that. Men serve, they lead, and they sacrifice. We've gone over this text so many times. For a husband is the head of his wife, and Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body, the church. Listen, I don't want to get into this um, leading, respecting, loving um, submission, what all of that looks like now. We've done that before. Go back and listen to some sermons online that cover that. Here's what I want to say about it for right now. Men, when you love your wife and your children and those that God has called you to lead the way that Christ loved the church... That means that it is all about them and it is none about you. And by the way, just as a side note, in families, in marriages, um, in scenarios where men lead this way, I've never had a wife or a child complain that they didn't want to submit. All of the time when I have conversations about, I'm not sure I understand what it means that I'm supposed to submit to my husband or submit to my father. Anytime I have those conversations and I look at the life of the husband and the father, I wouldn't want to submit either. I wouldn't want to submit either. But men, this is your call. When you love the way Christ loved the church, when you sacrifice and it's all about them and it's not about you and you're pouring yourself out for the sake of those that God has put in you to lead, then nobody questions your leadership. Nobody questions uh, that you have their best interest in mind. Listen, if you have trouble because your wife doesn't necessarily respect you or your kids don't necessarily want to follow, I'm not saying it's all on you, but I am saying stop and look. Am I loving them the way that Christ loved the church? Am I making it about them more than it's about me. And if you're not, then that's your first step. Fix that. Address that. Deal with that in your own heart. Deal with that in your own leadership. Be an authentic biblical man in that way and see what happens. In leadership, service, and sacrifice, what we just talked about, a man protects his family. That just makes good common sense, right? Like, Carrie and I are laying in bed we hear the window open and some stuff rustling around, right? Here, honey, I did it last time. Take the bat. Go check it out. See what's up. Let me know. Holler if you need me. Men, if you've done that, you should quit it. Apologize and be done with that. Right, We're we're called to protect, but here's the thing. Just like we talked about before, this doesn't mean just physical protection. This means you guard their hearts. Guard their hearts. Be careful about the input. Be careful about the influence. Be careful about what is coming into them. Speaking from experience, at this day and age, especially if your kids are in public school, I'm not mad at public school. I worked at public school for a long time. But in this day and age, especially if your kids are in public schools, man, they are getting told and they are getting discipled to a lot of things. You got to guard their hearts. You got to protect the sanctity of God's word. And maybe that means you take them out and you put them somewhere else. Maybe that means you just wrestle for the faith with them when they come home at night and you talk about their day. Okay? Prayerfully, you have to decide what that looks like, but but you gotta guard their hearts. Last thing. A man follows God's design for his life. Look at Micah 6:8. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. Do what's right, love mercy walk humbly with our God. You want to be an authentic man? Then you do what's right. According to God, you love mercy, right? You do justice, and you walk humbly with God. That's it. It's pretty simple. It's not always easy, but it's not overly complicated. It's our job to make sure that the people that God has put on us to lead as authentic biblical men know that we love them, know that we care for them, feel the sting of discipline for our children when it's necessary, and the tenderness of love and encouragement always. It's on us as biblical men to lead and protect, to guard hearts and minds. It's on us to do everything in love, not secret love, not, oh, I know it's done in love, but in a way that people could look and say, you know what, man, he loves those under his care. Because that's what we're called to do. And that's the way that we're supposed to live as authentic men. And, and, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to close with communion. Okay? And there's something I want to tell you. That's the, the elders uh, and, and the praise team to come forward as we prepare to move to communion. And this is, this is what I'm going to say to you here. Men, specifically, I'm talking to you. Women, listen in. This might be good for you. There might be some encouragement here. Men, listen to me. Do not white knuckle this. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I've messed this up. I've made mistakes, but I can do better. And you're like, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my big boy pants and, and I'm going to just white knuckle it and, I, and I'm going to bear down and I'm going to do better. That doesn't work. It's not going to work. It's not going to make the difference that you need. Here's the thing. You and I both know that you'll do well for a while And then you'll fall into old habits. Here's the simple reality that God, in all of scripture, in all of his word, not once does he ever ask you to reinvent yourself. You will never read in here where God says, hey, man, try harder, reinvent yourself, become a different person on your own, and then you'll be great. What God does say in here is, you know what? Be reborn. Completely surrender. Completely give it up. Be reborn into something new. And so what he says is um, that you need to be a new creation. You don't just need to discipline yourself. You need to be brand new. That's what we're going to celebrate with communion is the opportunity to be brand new. He says it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he's got all of these questions. Well, When's the kingdom coming? How's the kingdom coming? What do I have to do to get in the kingdom? What does this all look like? And Jesus stops, and, and, and he doesn't give him a bunch of to-dos. He doesn't give him a list of things that he needs to accomplish and tackle so that he'll be able to, to then enter into the kingdom. Instead, what he says is, no, 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 here's the thing. No one can enter the kingdom unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit must give birth to spirit. You must be born again. Right? Because you can't just reinvent yourself into this. You have to be reborn into this. That's the call to be a Christian. This is the entrance into the Christian life. That's why we celebrate communion. Because we are sinful and we can't do it on our own. But Jesus, because God loves us and and God wants to have a relationship with us, Jesus says, you know what? I will die on the cross and take your sin onto myself and then. Because I've taken your sin onto myself. If you choose to submit to me and follow me, then you are forgiven of your sin and you are living this new life. You are reborn into something else. Not reinvented, but reborn. Men, if you've been trying really hard and it's not working for you, then perhaps what you're called to do here is not to reinvent yourself, not to try harder, but to submit and be reborn. It's the mark of the Christian life, and it starts with following Jesus, and then everything falls into place. And you have an invitation to do that now, if you've never done that. To just submit and be reborn. And honestly, when we celebrate communion, that's what we celebrate. Um, Jesus gathers his room, or gathers his room, gathers his disciples in the upper room. Paul tells us about this in Corinthians. We read about it in the Gospels, and he gives us two symbols that paint this beautiful picture of about what's about to happen. He says, with, with the bread, he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this to remember me. And so when we eat the bread, what we're doing is we're remembering the sacrifice on the cross. That's what he meant when he said it's broken for you, is that his body was about to be bruised, battered, broken, pierced, crushed, all of those things on the cross as a penalty that he didn't owe. We owed it. Because of our sin... But God put it on him so that it would be paid for. So on the cross, my sin was paid for by the person of Jesus Christ. And when the bread was broken, he says, eat this and remember me. That's what he's saying. Remember, remember, when you eat this bread, you are celebrating the somber, awful fact that all of your sin cost death, but I took it for you. And then he poured the cup and he passed the cup and he said, this is my blood. Do this. Okay? So you won't drink it again until you drink it with me in my kingdom. And and, and basically what he's saying here is this blood, my blood, is about to be poured out as a drink offering for you. And you know what's great is that the sin on the cross breaks the body, and the blood ushers us into this idea of this new relationship. And so when you drink it, when you drink the juice, when you drink the cup, what you're remembering is simply that I am in a new relationship with God. I've been reborn. It's no longer me that lives, but Christ in me that lives. Will I be perfect? No. No. But when I struggle, my sins have been forgiven on the cross and I fall on grace and I move forward. That's what we do when we take communion. That's why we say communion is open to anybody that is a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, then the communion table is open for you. Okay? Uh, If you're not sure you believe this and you want to have a conversation with me after the service, let's talk. Let's dig into it. Okay. Uh, But anybody that calls um, themselves a Christian and follows Jesus is welcome to partake in communion. Here's what we'll do. We'll have communion, Okay. and then I'll ask you to exit after you take communion quietly. You can either have a seat and and prayerfully reflect, or um, you can feel free to exit. If you exit, I just ask that you do so quietly so that those that are still waiting to take communion can finish. Would you pray with me? And then we'll start. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. God, we, we thank you that you are a God that has sacrificed everything on the cross so that we can be reborn into a relationship with you, and that it's when we are reborn that we can authentically live the life that you've put in front of us. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning who has not accepted that free gift of salvation that is not chosen to be reborn and to follow you. I pray that you'll just poke at their hearts this morning and remind them of that truth. And God, bring them to a place where they will accept it and they will confess their sinfulness and they will just choose you. They can do that now in the quietness of their heart just by agreeing that they are sinners and that they've made mistakes and that you are the son of God and offer forgiveness And God, I thank you for your word where you've called us to be biblically authentic men. I pray for each of the men here, those that will listen online. I pray that that we will all take your word to heart. That we will all take the call to be biblically authentic men, to stand firm in the faith, to do everything in love, to have courage, and to be strong, to be immovable. Father, I pray that we take that seriously and that as we do that, that we will love and lead so well that we will see the hearts of a generation turned back to you. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. Amen.